Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. Uh, we are on episode 13 of the Gettysburg Campaign, and today we're going to be talking about the battle on Culp's Hill and East Cemetery Hill, and uh, we're getting close to the end. Uh, I am, I'm tr- I don't quite know how many episodes we're going to have left, because every time I try to put a number on it, it just ends up being more, but definitely we're past the halfway point. But yeah, so as always, uh, make sure to like the Facebook page. I guess I should put a link to the Facebook page in the description of these episodes, but I forget. And if you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other app that uses some sort of rating system, please give this five stars and a review. And without further ado, let's start the show. So the last few episodes were spent on the Confederate attack on the southern portion of the battlefield, beginning with Houck's Ridge, the Devil's Den, and Little Round Top, gradually moving northward to the Wheatfield and Peach Orchard, and finally climaxing at Cemetery Ridge. On the other side of the battlefield, things have been relatively quiet for most of the day. If you'll recall in episode 9, I talked about the planning stage for July 2nd, and how both sides are uncertain how they wanted to go about the second day of fighting. Robert E. Lee and his top lieutenants didn't come to a decision until about 9 a.m. that morning, when it was decided that Longstreet's two divisions that were present would lead the attack, followed by troops from Hill's Third Corps. The Confederate 2nd Corps, on the other hand, was to make demonstrative attacks against the Union right wing, that would possibly develop into a real assault if the conditions were right. What exactly were those conditions? Well, in typical R.E. Lee fashion, it was unclear, but it seems as if General Richard Ewell had come up with his own. It largely hinged on the perception of Longstreet's and Hill's attack. If things seemed as if they were going well, then he would send his three divisions in a full-blown assault against the apex and right wing of the Union line on Cemetery and Culp's Hills, respectively. There were several big flaws in this plan. The biggest one was that the Second Corps was in a bad position to make an assault. For one, the terrain which they faced was incredibly difficult to traverse in places, especially around Culp's Hill. Lee's decision to attack the Union left on July 2nd was largely because the terrain to the south presented more opportunities for success, artillery could be more effectively used on that part of the battlefield, and it was assumed that the high ground at the round tops were unoccupied when they planned to make the attack. Both Culp's and Cemetery Hills were known to be occupied by the Federals. Just how many troops were up there and how entrenched they were was unknown. Additionally, Ewell's position was mostly east of the town of Gettysburg. Two of his three divisions, Early's and Johnson's, were effectively separated from the rest of the army by the barrier that was the town. This made coordinating between the various army corps fairly difficult, unless they made a serious effort to do so, which, unsurprisingly, they did not. Basically, once the attacks were underway for the day, there was little communication between the three. On top of that, because two of Ewell's three divisions were east of town, that meant that the army was spread out over a pretty great distance. From one end of the line to the other was over five miles. The Army of Northern Virginia was still not at full strength because Pickett's division of the 1st Corps had yet to arrive. Basically, by the time that the Confederate attacks were underway on July 2nd, they were at a disadvantage numerically speaking, and their troops were spread too thin to concentrate effectively against any particular point of the Union line. The Federals also enjoyed the advantage of interior lines, which made reinforcing threatened sectors relatively easy for them, but incredibly difficult for the Confederates. 
As discussed in the last few episodes, the Army of the Potomac did utilize their interior lines quite a bit on July 2nd. And as I alluded to in episode 12, Meade probably shifted his troops a little too much because it weakened their defensive line in areas at exactly the wrong time. For most of the day, Culp's Hill was heavily fortified by the entire 12th Corps on the eastern and southern side, and Wadsworth's division of the 1st Corps on the incredibly steep northern side. The 12th Corps had around 9,000 infantrymen, and had seen no action on the first day. Wadsworth's division, which included the Iron Brigade and Cutler's Brigade, had taken a real beating on July 1st. Between the two brigades, they could muster only around 1,700 men in total. Combined, there were nearly 11,000 Union soldiers on Culp's Hill for most of the afternoon. Over the course of the previous night and the morning, the Yankees built a series of entrenchments that would give them ample protection in case of a Confederate attack. Allegheny Johnson's division, which was a few hundred yards to the north of the hill, had just over 6,000 infantrymen. Ewell was criticized for not launching an assault in concert with Longstreet's, but if he had, Johnson's division likely would have been annihilated in a suicidal attack on Culp's Hill. But, as the crisis on the Union left grew, Meade ordered all of the 12th Corps, save for Green's Brigade, to move to save the left. This occurred sometime around 6 p.m., about two hours after Longstreet's assault began. At that time, only three brigades covered Culp's Hill. On the extreme right was the previously mentioned brigade commanded by Brigadier General George S. Green. At the age of 62, Green was the oldest general in the Army of the Potomac. He was called Old Man or Pap Green by his soldiers. The Greens are a fairly prominent Rhode Island family. He was a second cousin of General Nathaniel Green, a hero of America's War of Independence. He had hoped to attend Brown University, but his family couldn't afford it, so he moved to New York City as a teenager where he worked in a dry goods store. By a matter of happenstance, he would meet Major Sylvanus Thayer, then superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy. Though he wasn't the first superintendent at West Point, Thayer was instrumental in turning the academy into America's preeminent engineering school, and to this day is still the longest tenured superintendent in the history of the academy. He's usually referred to as the father of West Point. Through Thayer's recommendation, Green received an appointment and attended the school. He graduated second in the class of 1823. Afterward, he stayed on at West Point as an assistant professor of mathematics and engineering. One of his students would include R.E. Lee. Green left the army in 1836, without ever having seen any combat, and spent the rest of his antebellum years as a civil engineer. But when the Civil War broke out, he was given a commission as a colonel of a New York infantry regiment, and quickly rose up to brigade command. Green had an engineer's mind, and was instrumental in the construction of defensive earthworks on Culp's Hill, in spite of the protestations of his division commander, General John Geary, who believed that trenches made the soldiers soft and fight poorly in the open field. Union breastworks began on the north side of the hill and ran along the crest starting east to west, then in turning to the south, going down to the lower part of the hill to the base of Spangler Spring, extending all the way to McAllister's woods along Rock Creek. Captain Jesse H. Jones, 27-year-old commander of Company I of the 60th New York Infantry, wrote after the war, quote, Our brigade, commanded by Brigadier General George S. Green, and comprising five New York regiments, 60th, 78th, 102nd, 137th, and 149th, was on the left of the division, and our regiment, 60th, was on the left of the brigade. The regiment was largely composed of men accustomed to woodcraft, and they fell to work to construct log breastworks with unaccustomed hardiness. All instinctively felt that a life-and-death struggle was impending, and that every help should be used. Culp's Hill was covered with woods, so all the materials needful were at our disposal. Right and left, the men felled the trees and blocked them up into a close log fence. 
piles of cordwood which lay nearby were quickly appropriated. The sticks, set slanting on end against the outer face of the logs, made excellent battening. All along the rest of the line of the corps, a similar defense was constructed. Fortunate regiments, which had spades and picks, strengthened their works with earth. By ten o'clock it was finished. Unquote. On Green's left was the 1st Division of the 1st Corps, commanded by Brigadier General James Wadsworth. Wadsworth was 55 and grew up in the Finger Lakes region of New York, son of a wealthy landowner. His pre-war years were mostly spent managing the family estate and getting involved in politics. Despite his total lack of military experience, his position in the Republican Party and his wealth helped him receive a general's commission early in the war. He'd been placed in command of the 1st Division of the 1st Corps just after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Brigadier General Lysander Cutler commanded the brigade next in line to Greens. Cutler was 56 and a native of Massachusetts. He made a fortune opening up various mills in Maine, though he lost most of his wealth in the financial panic of 1856 and moved to Wisconsin. He had relatively little military experience, but he'd served as a colonel in a Maine militia regiment in the 1830s where he garnered a reputation as a fierce Indian fighter. He began the war as the colonel of the 6th Wisconsin, which was one of the regiments in the Iron Brigade. His reputation as a tenacious fighter led a soldier in the 6th Wisconsin to call him the Grey Wolf. He was severely wounded at the Second Battle of Bull Run and then was passed over for command of the Iron Brigade when John Gibbon was promoted to division command in favor of Solomon Meredith. In the spring of 1863, he was promoted to Brigadier General and given command of Wadsworth's 2nd Brigade. On Cutler's left was the aforementioned Iron Brigade. Its commander, Solomon Meredith, was severely wounded in the previous day when a piece of artillery shrapnel struck him in the head which gave him a concussion. His horse was killed by another shell fragment and when they went down, the horse fell on him, breaking several ribs in his right leg. Meredith would never command troops in the field again and spent the rest of the war in administrative roles. Command of the Iron Brigade passed down to Colonel William W. Robinson, commander of the 7th Wisconsin Infantry. Robinson was 43 and grew up in Vermont. He spent most of his adult life on the frontier, and he did serve as a lieutenant in an Ohio infantry regiment in the Mexican War, and had some limited combat experience. He was also the colonel of a Minnesota militia regiment in the late 1850s. He was named Lieutenant Colonel of the 7th Wisconsin in 1861, but quickly was promoted to colonel in command of the regiment when its original commander left for a diplomatic job. The Iron Brigade entered the fight on July 1st with just over 1,800 officers and soldiers, and suffered over 1,000 casualties holding McPherson's and Seminary Ridges. With only about 700 unwounded Black Hats left, the Iron Brigade was a shell of its former self. Luckily for them, they occupied trenches, and perhaps the most difficult terrain to attack on the entire battlefield. To the west, in between Culp's and Cemetery Hills was another smaller hill, now referred to as Stevens Knoll named after Captain Greenleaf Stevens, who commanded the 5th Battery Main Light Artillery. His 6th smoothbore 12-pounder Napoleons were pointed northwest toward Gettysburg. Cemetery Hill was occupied by the 11th Corps, under Major General Oliver Howard. Most of the 11th had taken a real beating on July 1st, and had taken refuge on Cemetery Hill after retreating through Gettysburg. Despite the heavy casualties sustained the day before, they were in a strong position, and were supported by a large amount of artillery. But by the end of the day, 12 batteries of artillery, approximately 62 guns, would be placed on Cemetery Hill. It included both the 1st and 11th Corps' artillery brigade, as well as several batteries from the artillery reserve. All of the guns on East Cemetery Hill and Stevens Knoll, regardless of what unit they were a part of, were commanded by Colonel Charles Wainwright, the 1st Corps' artillery brigade commander. 
Protecting the base of East Cemetery Hill was the division that the day before was commanded by General Francis Barlow, who was wounded and captured north of town, but was now led by Brigadier General Adelbert Ames. On the right was a German brigade led by Colonel Leopold von Gilsa. Gilsa probably was not upset to see his former commander gone because Barlow had placed him under arrest on the march to Pennsylvania. Gilsa was 39 and a native of Prussia, where he served as an army officer until the 1850s. He was one of the few European officers in the Army of the Potomac who didn't participate in the revolutions of 1848, but he still immigrated to the United States and settled in New York. He was given a colonel's commission after he raised a regiment of German immigrants from New York and Pennsylvania and was given command of a brigade in late 1862. To his left was Ames's brigade, now under the leadership of Colonel Andrew L. Harris. Harris was a 28-year-old Ohioan who was studying law at the outbreak of the Civil War. He began the war as a private, but not long after rose to become a colonel and commander of the 75th Ohio. Gilsa and Harris's brigades were positioned behind a stone wall that ran parallel with the Brickyard Lane that ran southeast out of Gettysburg. Harris's left flank was bent back to the southwest and connected to the right of Major General Carl Schurz's division. Schurz's 1st Brigade had lost its commander, Brigadier General Alexander Schimmelfenig, still hiding from the Confederates in the town, and was now commanded by Colonel George von Amsberg. Amsberg had just turned 42 and was another German 48er officer in the 11th Corps. He was Hanoverian and had served in the Austrian army as a lieutenant in a Hussar regiment until he defected to participate in the Hungarian Revolution. Eventually, he was captured by the Austrians and was going to be executed for desertion, but spent nine years imprisoned after his death sentence was commuted. Afterward, he immigrated to America. In 1861, he organized the 45th New York Infantry, an all-German regiment, and led that until July 1st. He now commanded Schimmelfenig's brigade and covered the northwest side of Cemetery Hill. Behind Omsburg's brigade was the Polish 48er, Colonel Vladimir Kierznowski. The leftmost division in the 11th Corps was Brigadier General Adolf von Steinwehrs. Steinwehr was 40 and a native of the Duchy of Brunswick. He was also a Prussian officer, but left the army before 1848 to immigrate to the U.S., where he briefly worked as an engineer. After being denied an officer's commission in the Mexican War, he briefly returned to Brunswick, though eventually he came back to America and settled in New York. He raised a German regiment in New York and was given command of it, but quickly was promoted to brigade command and finally division command in the early summer of 1862. Coincidentally, both of Steinwehr's brigades were led by Americans. On the right was Colonel Orland Smith, a 38-year-old Mainer who settled in Ohio and worked in the 1850s as a railroad company executive and militia officer. Smith's brigade was the only one of the 11th Corps brigades that didn't see action during the fight on the first day. On their left was the last brigade of the 11th Corps, led by Colonel Charles Coster. Coster was a 26-year-old New Yorker who grew up in a wealthy Dutch-American family. He began the war as a private, but rose up to regimental command, and then less than a month before the Battle of Gettysburg, assumed command of Steinwehr's 1st Brigade. Although communication was poor in the Army of Northern Virginia, Dick Yule did learn that Longstreet's attack had been pushed back to around 4 p.m., so he decided that he would begin his own demonstration at that time. Yule turned to Allegheny Johnson's artillery battalion, now led by Major Joseph Latimer. Latimer was just 19 years old. A little more than two years prior, he had been a cadet at the Virginia Military Institute, where one of his professors was Thomas Stonewall Jackson. He left the Institute to join the Confederate Army in 1861, and despite his remarkably young age, rose from first lieutenant to major and artillery battery commander. General Yule called him the Young Napoleon. In the 19th century, everybody was calling each other the Something Napoleon but he was more commonly referred to as the Boy Major. 
Latimer assumed command of Johnson's artillery battalion after its commander, Colonel Richard Andrews, was wounded at the Second Battle of Winchester, discussed in Episode 5. Latimer's battalion, like most rebel artillery, was a real hodgepodge of various pieces. He had four batteries with four guns each. There were six Napoleons, five 10-pounder Parrot rifles, three 3-inch rifles, and two 20-pounder Parrot rifles. Just before 4 o'clock, Ewell ordered Latimer's battalion to deploy onto Benner's Hill. The hill was on the property of Christian Benner, 59-year-old farmer native to Gettysburg. At its peak, Benner's Hill was 579 feet tall and ran north to south just east of the town near the Hanover Road. Latimer's 16 guns opened up an intense barrage against the Union batteries posted on Cemetery Hill. Wainwright's guns were quick to respond, though. A member of the Chesapeake, Maryland artillery gun crew would recall his experience after the war. Quote, Benner's Hill was simply a hell infernal. Our position was well calculated to drive confidence from the stoutest heart. We were directly opposed by some of the finest batteries in the regular service of the enemy, which batteries moreover held a position to which ours was but a molehill. Our shells ricocheted over them, whilst theirs plunged into the devoted battalion, carrying death and destruction everywhere. The Chesapeake received the most deadly evidence of that terrible duel. Our gallant captain, William D. Brown, was the first to fall. Riding to the front of his battery, he enjoined us, for the honor of our native state, to stand manfully to our guns. The words were still upon his lips when he fell, dreadfully mangled by a solid shot. No braver or more unselfish patriot fell upon that blood-soaked field, and none were more beloved by their commands. There were many deeds of heroism on that field that day, and of these the Chesapeake had its share. Three of our pieces were silenced, and sadly, and with moist eye, Sergeant Crowley stood meditatively looking at the wreck around him. Approaching the veteran, he pointed with a trembling voice to his dead and wounded comrades. There were Dr. Jack Bryan, and Daniel Doherty, and brave little Cusick. They belonged to his detachment. And even while he was deploying their loss, a solid shot struck Thaddeus Parker, and literally disemboweled him and killed the two lead horses he was holding. The 4th Detachment was now all that was serviceable of the battery, and it continued to fire. His own piece being disabled, Jacob F. Cook was assigned as number 2 to Sergeant Phil Brown's detachment, and while inserting a charge in the piece, the wheel on the odd number side was hard hit. Sergeant Brown, Smith Warrington, Phil Oldner, and Henry Wilson were each severely wounded by this shot. The sergeant stepped down to Rock Creek, close to our position, bound up his wound, and returned to jack up his gun put on a spare wheel and resumed firing. Oldner was suffering at the time from a wound but recently received, and the fresh hurt was more than his system to overcome, and in a short while he was laid in a soldier's grave. And then we lost Lieutenant Ben Roberts and Richard Hardesty, both mortally wounded." Unquote. Colonel Charles Wainwright commanded his own 1st Corps artillery brigade in addition to all the other batteries posted on East Cemetery Hill on July 2nd. Wainwright was a 36-year-old New Yorker who was born in the city but grew up in the Hudson Valley. His father was a prosperous farmer, and he would follow in his footsteps, but left Rhinebeck to become an artillery officer in 1861. Wainwright was also notable for his journals that he kept for the entirety of the war. Published posthumously nearly a century after the war, A Diary of Battle, the personal journals of Colonel Charles S. Wainwright, 1861-1865, remains one of the most detailed and reliable first-hand accounts of the Civil War. He described the morning of July 2nd as rather quiet, but with the expectation that a large battle was impending. Most of the day was spent checking on his batteries and conversing with General Ames, whom he described as a gentleman, and appreciated his unobtrusive style. Wainwright described the events of the afternoon. 
quote, about four o'clock, the enemy planted four 20-pounder and six 10-pounder parrots on a high knoll opposite our north front, and opened with a well-directed fire. To this, I was able to reply with 13 3-inch guns, so that the weight of metal was about equal when you add the occasional shot which Stevens was able to get in from his left section. In every other respect, the rebel guns had the advantage of us. They were on higher ground, and having plenty of room were able to place their guns some 30 yards apart, while ours were not over 12 and the two faces of our line meeting here, the limbers stood absolutely crowded together. Still, we were able to shut them up, and actually drive them from the field in about two hours. Their two right guns we could see them haul off by hand. They left 28 dead horses on the ground, while we did not lose over a dozen. How it was they did not kill more horses I cannot understand, huddled together as we were, for their fire was the most accurate I have ever seen on the part of their artillery, and the distance was just right, say, 1400 yards. Some of their guns afterward took position more to our left, at about 2,000 yards, but were soon silenced, I being reinforced by a section of 20-pounder parrots which took position in the cemetery." Unquote. It's interesting to hear the differing accounts of Wainwright and the anonymous Confederate gunner. Both believe that their respective positions put them at a disadvantage. Though Cemetery Hill did have a higher summit than Benner's Hill, the Federal batteries that dueled with Latimer's battalion were on the lower part of the hill, which is usually referred to as East Cemetery Hill. Though there were quite a few guns on Cemetery Hill, most of them were faced toward the west. The Union guns did have one key advantage, which was that they were guarded by lunettes, a type of field fortification that gave extra protection to the artillery pieces. Conversely, the 16 Confederate guns were on open ground, and incredibly exposed to counter-battery fire. Regardless of who had the advantage, the Federal artillery won the match. Major Latimer requested that he be allowed to withdraw his batteries to a more favorable position, which was granted by Johnson. He left one battery on the hill to cover the retreat of the rest of the battalion. When he rode back to check on their status, a shell from a Union rifle gun whizzed by and burst over him. Latimer's arm was severely wounded by shrapnel. He was further injured when his horse was killed by another piece of shrapnel and fell on top of Latimer's body, trapping him on the ground. His mangled arm was amputated not long after, and was transported out of Gettysburg with the Army of Northern Virginia. He first traveled to Winchester, Virginia, and then finally to Harrisonburg, where he was sent to recuperate in the home owned by Colonel Edward T.H. Warren. While in transit, Latimer's wound would develop gangrene. The boy major died from the infection on August 1st. Lieutenant Robert Stiles, Confederate artillery officer, was acting as a courier with dispatches for General Johnson. As he rode by in search for Johnson, he witnessed the artillery duel in its aftermath, and wrote about the destruction he encountered in his post-war memoirs. Quote, Never, before or after, did I see fifteen or twenty guns in such a condition of wreck and destruction as this battalion was. It had been hurled backward, as it were, by the very weight and impact of metal, from the position it had occupied on the crest of a little ridge, into a saucer-shaped depression behind it, and such a scene as it presented, Guns dismounted and disabled, carriages splintered and crushed, ammunition chests exploded, limbers upset, wounded horses plunging and kicking, dashing out the brains of men tangled in the harnesses, while cannoneers with pistols were crawling around through the wreck shooting at the struggling horses to save the lives of the wounded men. Unquote. Latimer's battalion fell back to a position further north where it continued to fire sporadically at Cemetery Hill, but things became relatively quiet on that part of the battlefield for a while. If Ewell was supposed to create some sort of diversion to tie down Union troops to that side of the field, he failed, because, as stated before, all of the 12th Corps minus Green's brigade left Culp's Hill to reinforce the Union left. 
Charles Wainwright kind of half-correctly predicted that the Confederate artillery barrage was the ruse. Quote, Our artillery duel here was a mere divertisement. The rebels making their charge on our left, where Sickles had thrown his corps in advance of the rest of the line. I saw nothing of the affair, so shall say nothing, save that, from what I can learn, the position chosen by Sickles was a bad one. Unquote. Likewise, Ewell saw nothing of the affair, but he did have some sense of what was happening on Longstreet's front. The battle was moving further north as the evening went on, as predicted, which probably made Ewell believe that the attack was making progress as it got closer to him. It was around 6 p.m. when the Union salient at the Peach Orchard collapsed, under the weight of Barksdale's and Wilcox's brigades attacking. Ewell decided that his corps would attack an echelon, meaning that it would be staggered in a similar way that Longstreet and Hill's attack was. Johnson's division would first attack Culp's Hill, followed by Early's division attacking East Cemetery Hill, and then finally Rhodes's division attacking Cemetery Hill from the west. Ewell also had the expectation that Pender's division would participate in conjunction with Anderson's division on his right and Rhodes' division on his left. Johnson's division was made up of four brigades. The most well-known was the Stonewall Brigade, which garnered its nickname at the First Battle of Bull Run along with its original commander, the late General Jackson. It was made up of five infantry regiments, all from Virginia. The brigade had gone through several other commanders after Jackson was promoted in late 1861. Most recently, they were led by Brigadier General Elisha Paxton until he was killed in action at Chancellorsville. Promoted to replace him was Brigadier General James A. Walker. Walker was 30 and from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Eleven years prior, he was expelled from VMI when a dispute with his mathematics professor, none other than the future Stonewall Jackson, led to him challenging Jackson to a duel. After his expulsion from VMI, Walker studied law at the University of Virginia. At the time of Paxton's death, he was the colonel of the 13th Virginia Infantry. I've read in some places that it was Jackson himself who handpicked Walker on what was ultimately his deathbed, but I wasn't able to confirm this story. It sounds apocryphal to me, kind of trying to highlight the irony of the guy who got him expelled from VMI, picking him as the replacement of his old brigade. Another place I read that it was Lee who chose Walker, much to the chagrin of the regimental commanders of the Stonewall Brigade, whom considered Walker to be a kind of outsider to their vaunted unit. Johnson's largest brigade was that led by Brigadier General George Hume Stewart. Stewart was 34 and a native of Baltimore, Maryland. To cut down on confusion with two other generals, he had two nicknames given to him during the war. His father, also named George Hume Stewart, was a prominent slave owner, landowner, and militia leader from Maryland. He led a militia company during the War of 1812 at several battles in Maryland, and was active in the militia during the Antebellum Era, which included leading several militia companies to suppress John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. The elder Stewart, like the overwhelming majority of Maryland's slave-owning planters, sided with the Confederacy and left Maryland early in the war for Virginia. Because he was in his early 70s, he was not given an officer's commission, but he would follow the Army of Northern Virginia for much of the war and was present at the Battle of Gettysburg. To prevent confusion with his son, he was called the Old General, and perhaps not surprisingly, his son was called the Young General. But the Young General was more commonly referred to as Maryland Stewart, to differentiate him from the more well-known General Jeb Stewart, though their last names are spelled differently. Maryland Stewart was a West Point graduate of the class of 1848, which meant that he just missed the Mexican War. He spent more than a decade in the U.S. Army as a cavalry officer on the frontier until he resigned his commission in the spring of 1861. He quickly rose from a cavalry captain to command of an infantry regiment just after the First Battle of Bull Run, and then to brigade command in the spring of 62. 
It was during Jackson's Valley campaign that he received a nasty wound from a piece of artillery shrapnel that forced him out of action for more than a year. His return to the Army of Northern Virginia came just after the Battle of Chancellorsville, when he was assigned command of Brigadier General Raleigh Colston's brigade. Colston had been relieved of command by Lee back in late May during the reorganization of the Army. Unlike most Confederate brigades in Lee's Army, Stuart's brigade consisted of regiments from multiple states, all from the Upper South. Three Virginia regiments, two North Carolina regiments, and the 1st Maryland Battalion, aka the 2nd Maryland Infantry, which had recently been added to the brigade. Of the 37 brigades in the Army, it was only one of five with more than 2,000 infantrymen. Virginians dominated Johnson's division. They were the majority of Stuart's brigade. The Stonewall Brigade was made up solely of Virginia units. Johnson had a second brigade that was made up entirely of Virginia units as well, led by Brigadier General John M. Jones. Jones is a 42-year-old Virginian and a career Army officer. He was a graduate of the West Point class of 1841. During his time at the Point, he received the nickname Rum Jones because of his penchant for alcohol. Considering how many drunkards there were in the mid-19th century, it's quite a feat to be known by others as a heavy drinker. Despite his mediocre standing at the academy, he eventually became an assistant instructor of infantry tactics, and as a result missed the Mexican War. He also served on an army board that revised light infantry and artillery tactics in the 1850s, and served on several frontier posts, and was part of the expedition against the Mormons. He led an infantry regiment early in the Civil War, but later joined General Stonewall Jackson's staff, and served in various roles on the staffs of other generals in Jackson's corps. Despite his lengthy experience and the fact that most of his West Point classmates were already brigade, division, corps, and even army commanders, it wasn't until May of 1863 that he was finally promoted to brigadier general and given command of a brigade. It seems as if he was on a short leash, either due to incompetence or drunkenness, because Lee, in a letter to President Davis, wrote that, quote, should Jones fail in his duty, he will immediately resign, unquote. The last brigade of Johnson's division was a Louisiana brigade led by Colonel Jesse M. Williams. Williams replaced General Francis Nichols when he was badly wounded in the foot at Chancellorsville. Williams' background isn't terribly detailed, but he was a 32-year-old Louisiana native and a son of a wealthy slave owner, and he was a graduate of the University of Alabama. He began the war as an infantry captain and led the 2nd Louisiana since the end of the Peninsula Campaign and had served as a temporary brigade commander at a few battles in 1862. Ewell is sometimes criticized for his decision to initiate an attack so late in the day on July 2nd, but he reasoned that because of the difficulty of the terrain that the cover of darkness would nullify some of the advantages that the Union defenders had. I'm not sure I quite agree with his decision. He wasn't entirely wrong, but night attacks were a rarity in the Civil War for a reason. Fighting in the dark is incredibly difficult, but one unexpected positive of his decision was that when Johnson's division went into action, most of the 12th Corps had already vacated Culp's Hill. The plan was for all four of Johnson's brigades to attack the hill. Johnson's division had spent most of the day north of Benner's Hill, out of range of the enemy's guns, and watched the extreme left flank of the Confederate Army along the Hanover Road. Early in the afternoon, a body of Union troops approached Gettysburg from the east from Hanover, which caused the Confederate troops in that sector some anxiety. It was unclear if it was cavalry or some unaccounted-for infantry corps. Walker's troops had actually encountered Union infantry earlier that morning, when skirmishers of the 27th Indiana traded shots with the Stonewall Brigade on one of the farms between Wolf's Hill and the Hanover Road. Eventually, more Federal skirmishers from Ruger's and McDougal's brigades of the 12th Corps joined the 27th Indiana on their right. 
As the morning progressed, Union infantry reinforcements in the form of the 5th Corps began to arrive, and the U.S. regulars of Ayer's division and Barnes's division would also deploy as skirmishers, extending the Union right further to the east until it stretched from Rock Creek at the base of Culp's Hill all the way to the Hanover Road. Stonewall Brigade's skirmish line was quickly becoming outnumbered, and at points were forced to fall back, but ultimately the 5th Corps would be moved to support the Union left at Little Round Top in the wheat field, and Ruger's and McDougal's brigades would pull back to Culp's Hill. The 9th Massachusetts of Schweitzer's brigade of Barnes's division was left on the Union right to protect their flank, though eventually it would join the rest of the 5th Corps at Big Round Top later in the day. The 9th Massachusetts would spend the rest of the late morning and the early afternoon trading shots around the Deerdorf farm with the Virginians of the Stonewall Brigade, but for the most part things remained rather uneventful on the flank for both armies. On the afternoon of the 2nd, the Yankees they saw approaching belonged to the cavalry division of General David M. Gregg. Gregg's division last appeared in Episode 4, at the Battle of Upperville, when his troopers faced off against Jeb Stewart's cavalry, but largely had been on the periphery ever since. According to Captain William E. Miller of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry, they left Hanover, Pennsylvania around 3 a.m. that morning, and neared Gettysburg around 12 hours later. Captain Miller described the rough shape they were in, quote, By this time we had become a sorry-looking body of men, having been in the saddle day and night almost continuously for over three weeks, without a change of clothing or an opportunity for a general wash. Moreover, we were much reduced by short rations and exhaustion, and mounted on horses whose bones were plainly visible to the naked eye." General Gregg's cousin, Colonel Long John Gregg, ordered Major Matthew Henry Avery of the 10th New York Cavalry to send skirmishers to probe the Confederate line to the west of Brinkerhoff Ridge. Walker's skirmish line was stretched out about a mile in length on either side of the Hanover Road. Avery had two companies dismount and march west. As they passed through the farm of the Cress family, they witnessed the Cresses flee with as much as they could carry, which amused the advancing Federals. A handful of troopers found some fish that the family had left behind and quickly scarfed as much down as they could before continuing toward Brinkerhoff Ridge. As they climbed up the small slope, they began to take fire from the rebel skirmishers. After trading shots at long distance for a few minutes, the New York troopers fell back. Walker ordered his skirmish line to advance and pursue the retreating Yankees. More companies and squadrons of the 10th New York were ordered forward to drive back Walker's skirmishers. It was around this time when Latimer's cannonade from Benner's Hill began, and Johnson went about preparing the division for a potential attack. He sent couriers to Walker to bring the Stonewall Brigade back to the rest of the division, but Walker was worried about his left flank. They still had no real idea of what or how many federal troops they faced. Johnson then ordered Walker to drive the Yankees back and then pull his own troops back to the division to be ready for the attack. The five Virginia regiments advanced to drive away the various companies of the 10th New York. Around this time, none other than General Jeb Stuart arrived to witness the charge of the Stonewall Brigade. The Bowser Burr had finally reached the battlefield after being out of contact with the army for about a week. After briefly scouting the area, Stuart rode toward Gettysburg where he'd meet later that day with Lee. More on that, plus Stuart's antics on the last few days later. The Union skirmish line began to crumple under the weight of the infantry advancing in battle lines. The Virginians came on so quickly in certain instances that they captured some of the dismounted Yankee troopers, who were too slow to get away. The rebels probably would have continued east until two shots from the guns of Captain William Rank's section of the 3rd Pennsylvania Heavy Artillery were fired at them. The Confederates were without artillery, and the infantry halted to reform. Walker was still unsure exactly what force lay out to the east. Though they'd driven back the 10th New York, it was clear that some force backed by artillery still lingered, 
so Walker informed Johnson that he would not be able to rejoin the division for the planned attack. The Virginians once again advanced, but General Gregg responded by sending in more troopers. Colonel John B. McIntosh sent the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry and the 1st New Jersey Cavalry forward to check the advance of the rebel infantry. Both sides continued to fight for Brinkerhoff Ridge until around 9 p.m., when a final Union counterattack retook the ridge and the Virginians fell back to the tree line. This little sideshow, the Battle of Gettysburg, is rarely talked about in most books on the subject, other than maybe just a passing mention. In a vacuum, there's not really much reason to discuss it. Casualties were light, and nothing significant was captured or lost. It was mostly just light skirmishing for the better part of six hours. But it would at least have some effect on Johnson's attack on Culp's Hill. He'd be missing at least a thousand infantrymen, arguably some of his most well-trained veteran soldiers. Speaking of which, let's talk about that attack, shall we? Three hours after the artillery duel between Latimer's battalion and the Union batteries on Cemetery Hill began, Johnson's division was finally ordered to advance. This period of inaction lulled the Federals into thinking that no attack would come, but at 7pm the Confederate infantry were seen massing on the eastern side of Culp's Hill. Jones's Virginia Brigade was on the right, with Williams' Louisianans in the center, and finally Maryland's Stewart's Brigade on the far left. It was rough going for the Confederates. It did have an advantage in terms of troop strength, though. Even without the Stonewall Brigade, Johnson's three attacking brigades had around 4,700 infantrymen, compared to the three brigades of Union defenders that totaled just over 3,000. But the Confederates had not properly reconnoitered the terrain, and once the attack was underway, the sun had nearly set. General Green realized that he was now in an extremely precarious situation. His brigade represented the far right flank of the Army of the Potomac, and that flank was threatened by this attacking force. He sent out couriers to General Wadsworth, whose division was on the summit of Culp's Hill and was in no danger of being attacked, and General Howard on Cemetery Hill for reinforcements. General Jones wrote of the tough going that his brigade faced as they attacked. Quote, At this time, the Major General Commanding arrived upon the hill, occupied by the artillery, and after a short time directed me to form my brigade in line and move forward where Nichols' brigade had formed on my left, and to attack the enemy in his position on the opposite hill. The brigade advanced in good order, moving down the slope of the hill across the bottom, Gettysburg Creek, that's what he called Rock Creek, and up the hill occupied by the enemy. The hill was steep, heavily timbered, rocky, and difficult of ascent. Unquote. Jones's brigade attacked several New York regiments of Green's and Cutler's brigades. After they drove back the skirmish line at the base of the hill, they climbed up the slope toward the main line. Captain T.R. Buckner of the 44th Virginia wrote about his experience. Quote, the works in front of our lines were of a formidable character, and in some places they could scarcely be surmounted without scaling ladders." Unquote. Buckner surely exaggerated, but he would also comment on the general confusion caused by attacking a thickly wooded hill at dusk. Quote, by the time that we reached the enemy's breastworks, it was so dark that it was impossible to distinguish friend from foe. All was confusion and disorder. Unquote. Casualties were quickly mounting for the Virginians. Captain Samuel T. Buchanan, commander of the Company D, 48th Virginia, would recall, quote, We were just drove into the slaughter pen. We had to charge up a very steep mountain. Our men fell like grass before the scythe, unquote. General Jones himself would be among the casualties. In his post-battle report, he recalled, quote, 
When near the first line of entrenchments, moving with my troops, I received a flesh wound through the thigh, the excessive hemorrhage from which rendered it necessary for me to be borne from the field, and the command of the brigade devolved upon Lieutenant Colonel Dungan, Colonel J.C. Higginbotham having been previously wounded." Unquote. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Dungan took command of the brigade after it had fallen back down the hill until they were about 300 yards from the Federal breastworks. On their left, the Louisiana Brigade, commanded by Colonel Jesse Williams, faced similar challenges as they assaulted Green's Brigade. In Williams' post-battle report, he complained that Jones's Brigade did little to help their situation. Quote, The brigade engaged the enemy near the base of these heights, and having quickly driven his front line into the entrenchments on their crest, continued forward until it reached a line about 100 yards from the enemy's works, when it again engaged him with an almost incessant fire for four hours, pending which several attempts to carry the works by assault, being entirely unsupported on the right, Jones's brigade having failed to hold its line on the right, were attended with more loss than success." Unquote. Third Sergeant Wilson G. Lloyd, 2nd Louisiana, echoed Williams' comments about the intensity and duration of the fight. Quote, the charge by our brigade was continued till we reached a line about 150 yards from the enemy's works, when an incessant fire was kept up. Unquote. The 2nd Louisiana attacked the left of Green's line, which included the 60th New York Regiment. Captain Jesse Jones was on the receiving end of that attack and described it after the fact. Quote, in a short time, the woods were all flecked with flashes from muskets of our skirmishers. Down in the hollow there, at the foot of the slope, you could catch a glimpse now and then, by the blaze of powder, of our brave boys as they sprang from tree to tree, and sent back defiance to the advancing foe. With desperation, they clung to each covering, for half an hour, they obstructed the enemy's approach. The men restrained their nervous fingers. The hostile guns flamed out against us not 15 yards in front. Our men from the front were tumbling over the breastwork, and for a breathless moment, those behind the breastwork waited. Then, out into the night, like chain lightning, leaped the zigzag line of fire. Now was the value of breastworks apparent, for, protected by these, few of our men were hit, and feeling a sense of security, we worked with corresponding energy. Without breastworks, our line would have been swept away in an instant by the hailstorm of bullets and a flood of men." Unquote. Green's decision to construct defensive works paid off, but his brigade was still spread incredibly thin because of the absence of the rest of the 12th Corps on his right. Marilyn Stewart's brigade was the last to join the attack on the far left of the Confederate line. Like the rest of Johnson's division, Stewart's infantrymen had a difficult time traversing the ground during the attack. Because of several nearby mill dams, Rock Creek was quite deep where they needed to cross, waist-high in places. It was so deep that if you were playing Oregon Trail 2 and asked for advice what to do next, some random pioneer would probably advise you not to ford the creek. You know, this riverbank makes for a good rest in place. Watching the advance of the Confederates was Lieutenant Samuel Wheelock, whose 137th New York was on the extreme right of the Federal line. He wrote in a letter just four days later, quote, our regiment and the 149th were posted to guard the line of entrenchments thrown up by Kane's brigade, thus scattering our small force over a distance four times greater than that originally occupied by us. Just as this disposition of our troops was made, firing in our front announced the advance of the rebels. Pickett's made a gallant stand and then fell back to the trenches." Unquote. Maryland Stewart's brigade had to wheel to the right in order to be in the correct position. But there was a misunderstanding in the left wing of the brigade, which caused them to fall behind the rightmost regiments. He described the action, quote, The slope of the hill above referred to at that point where the brigade crossed the creek commences about 50 feet from the bank, and, being thickly wooded, the charge of our right wing was made under great disadvantages. 
The 3rd North Carolina and 1st Maryland Battalion, which were now entirely separated from the rest of the brigade, advanced up the hill, however, steadily toward the enemy's breastworks, the enemies falling back slowly. Our loss was heavy, the fire being terrific, and in part a crossfire." Unquote. Proper defensive breastworks shouldn't be in a completely straight line. You want the line to have angles and places to create crossfires, as Stuart remarked in his report. The 3rd North Carolina and 1st Maryland Battalion were caught between the 149th and 137th New York regiments and suffered heavy casualties as a result. Johnson ordered Stuart to rush the other four regiments, 1st North Carolina and the three Virginia units, across Rock Creek to attack. Captain James H. Wood, commander of the Company D, 37th Virginia, had this to say about the charge. Quote, the advance across Rock Creek, a small but rugged stream with deep stretches reaching up to the waist, thence through timber and undergrowth, up the slope to the steep ascent. The fire was withering, but did not impede the charge. Unquote. The breakthrough occurred when the 23rd and 10th Virginia charged the lightly manned Federal trenches. The 10th managed to turn the right flank of the 137th New York and force them to pull back. Lieutenant Wheelock of the 137th said of their retreat, quote, then taking advantage of our want of support on the right, a body of rebels succeeded in turning our right flank and gained a position behind a stone wall directly in our rear, and not more than a hundred yards distant. A murderous fire was opened on us, and our regiment was ordered to fall back to the left." Unquote. Luckily for the New Yorkers, Green had his soldiers dig a traverse line, a trench that runs perpendicular from the main defensive line, that faced south toward the Stewart's Brigade. The 23rd Virginia occupied the Yankee breastworks and filed down to the right. They were joined by the other Virginia regiments and the Marylanders. Green did receive the reinforcements that he requested, though how effective they were is debatable. Two regiments of Cutler's Brigade were sent to bolster Green's troops that still occupied the breastworks. Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes also led his 6th Wisconsin of the Iron Brigade through the darkness until they ran into the soldiers of Stewart's Brigade, which they had a brisk firefight with. Four regiments of Colonel George von Amsberg's brigade were ordered to leave Cemetery Hill and support Green's right. The four regiments were split into two columns that were led to Culp's Hill. 45th New York and 82nd Illinois Infantry regiments took up position in the trenches, replacing some of Green's troops that had run out of ammunition. They helped repulse several attacks made by the right wing of Stewart's brigade, which led an unknown officer to tell Lieutenant Colonel Edward Selig Solomon commander of the 82nd Illinois, that, quote, If you had been here yesterday instead of the damned 11th Corps, we would not have been driven back, unquote. Solomon didn't take the remark well. He angrily replied, quote, You are a miserable hound, sir. I and my regiment belong to that same 11th Corps you were speaking of, and we did no worse fighting yesterday, unquote. The unknown officer then slunk away into the darkness. Solomon did have a lot to be proud of. He was a 26-year-old German-Jewish immigrant that had settled in Chicago, where in 1861 he was elected as the youngest alderman in the city's history. The Solomon family was well represented in the Union Army. Two of his cousins were also officers, General Frederick Solomon and Colonel Charles Solomon. A third cousin, also named Edward Solomon, was at that time the governor of Wisconsin. General Carl Schertz, his division commander, described his actions on July 1st, quote, he was the only soldier at Gettysburg who did not dodge when Lee's guns thundered. He stood up, smoked a cigar, and faced the cannonballs with the sangfroid of a Saladin. Unquote. His regiment was fairly diverse. It was mostly made up of German immigrants, but also included a large number of German Jews and Swedes. Due to the darkness and the smoke, two other regiments of Almsburg's brigade, 61st Ohio and 157th New York, unknowingly walked into the middle of probably four of Stuart's regiments and quickly fell back after taking a few casualties. 
Most likely, they marched straight back to Cemetery Hill not long after. Another regiment, the 71st Pennsylvania of the Philadelphia Brigade, was sent by General Hancock when he heard the fight break out on Culp's Hill. The 71st came across the Baltimore Pike and were directed by Captain Charles Horton of General Green's staff to join the 137th on their right flank. After marching into position, the Pennsylvanians came under fire from the rebels in the darkness. With little explanation, the regiment's commander, Colonel Richard P. Smith, ordered the 71st to fall back and then countermarch back the way they came. As Lieutenant Samuel Wheelock put it, quote, Thus ended on the right wing the engagement of the second. It was a close and bloody struggle. Unquote. By this time, it was completely dark, sometime after 10 p.m. As I just detailed, there was a tremendous amount of confusion as both armies stumbled around on the night of July 2nd at Culp's Hill. Stuart brought up his reserve regiment, the 1st North Carolina. When they came upon the main line, they spotted infantry in the woods and opened fire until they realized it was the 1st Maryland Battalion that they were shooting at. It wasn't the only friendly fire incident of the evening. Further operations for either side would have to wait until the morning. Johnson's attack on Culp's Hill was mostly a failure, and what success it achieved was mostly due to the luck of attacking as late as it did. Jones's and Williams' brigades failed to make any headway, so much so that Generals James Wadsworth and Lysander Cutler made little mention of the assault in their post-battle reports. Cutler wrote, quote, Sufficient to say that the fighting on those days was mostly in the trenches, with small loss to us and great loss to the enemy, unquote. Wadsworth also only recorded one sentence about the action on Culp's Hill. Quote, we were ordered to occupy a hill on the right of the cemetery, which we held on the 2nd and the 3rd against a sharp attack of the enemy on the evening of the 2nd and the morning of the 3rd, with small loss to us. Unquote. At the same time that Johnson's division began their assault on Culp's Hill, Early's division was lying in waiting to launch their own. Early only had three brigades ready to make the attack. Extra Billy Smith's brigade was in the rear, guarding the York Pike. Several hours before, Early brought up two of his brigades, General Harry Hayes' Louisiana Tigers, and Colonel Isaac Avery's North Carolina Brigade. Both took up a position behind a small slope just south of Weinbrenner's Run. John Gordon's Brigade, which was the largest of the division, but had also taken the most casualties on July 1st, was held in reserve. I talked about Hayes and the Louisiana Tigers back in Episode 5, but I do want to briefly talk about Jubal Early and Isaac Avery. Jubal Early was 46, and a native of Franklin County, Virginia. His father, Joab Early, was one of the wealthiest men in that part of Virginia. He owned several thousand acres of tobacco plantation land, as well as several thousand enslaved black people. Jubal Early eventually accepted an appointment to West Point and graduated in the class of 1837, 18th in the class. He had a reputation as being a rather irascible person with a short temper. One story that gained popularity during the Civil War years was that a fellow cadet and future Confederate general, Louis Armistead, broke a plate over Early's head over some sort of dispute during dinner. Armistead was either dismissed or forced to voluntarily resign from West Point. It's unclear exactly how true that story is, but uh, it, during the Civil War years it gained some steam and ever since it's kind of been accepted as fact. Early only stayed in the Army for about a year. He did briefly serve in the Seminole War, but didn't see much combat, and then left for civilian life. He returned to Virginia, where he became, shockingly, a lawyer, and then was elected as a representative for Franklin County in the Virginia House of Delegates. He was a fairly prominent Whig politician in Virginia, and as secessionism grew in Virginia, Early was actually notable as one person who was a staunch Unionist, though that would quickly change in 1861. Early did briefly serve in the Mexican War, though he didn't really see any combat. 
Afterward, he returned to Virginia where he resumed his legal career. He was never again elected to public office, but he was elected as one of the representatives to Virginia's secession conventions in 1861. And even though he voted no on secession both times, he pretty quickly realized that not siding with the Confederacy was in pretty strong conflict with his class interests. He did consider himself a Virginian first and foremost. He allegedly only owned one enslaved person during his life, but again, he was raised as part of the planter class, and that was deeply ingrained in his character. He led a Virginia infantry regiment at the first Battle of Bull Run, and then quickly was promoted to brigade command. By the fall of 1862, he was leading a division in Jackson's Corps. During the Mexican War, he had developed rheumatoid arthritis, which would plague him for the rest of his life, and even though he had already been known as kind of a short-tempered kind of guy, that only grew worse with the pains from the arthritis. His just kind of angry disposition and his tendency to curse led Robert E. Lee to nickname him My Bad Old Man, even though he was several years younger than Lee. But his soldiers often referred to him as Old Jube or Old Jubilee. Of the two brigades of his division that were going to make the attack, Hayes was on the right and Avery's brigade was on the left. Colonel Isaac Avery was a 34-year-old North Carolina native. He was one of 16 children that grew up on a wealthy planter family in the western part of North Carolina. Avery's were very prominent in local and state politics. His father, also named Isaac, had amassed some 50,000 acres of land and owned over 100 enslaved people by 1850. He was also an ardent advocate of the institution of slavery and secessionism. The younger Isaac attended the University of North Carolina for only a year before he dropped out to run one of his father's plantations. In the mid-1850s, he formed a partnership with Charles Fisher and Samuel McDowell Tate to act as contractors for the Western North Carolina Railroad. When the Civil War began, all three would help organize the 6th North Carolina Infantry Regiment. Fisher was named the Colonel, Tate Captain of Company D, and Avery, captain of Company E. Fisher was killed at the First Battle of Bull Run, and Avery was wounded there. During the Peninsula Campaign, he was promoted twice, first a lieutenant colonel, and then he replaced Dorsey Pender as colonel of the 6th North Carolina. Avery was wounded twice during the campaign, second of which would knock him out of action for the rest of 1862. The 6th was transferred to the all-North Carolina Brigade of Brigadier General Robert Hoke, just before the Battle of Chancellorsville. There, Hoke was severely wounded at the battle and would miss the rest of 1863 recuperating, and temporary command of the brigade fell upon Colonel Avery. At 7.30 p.m., about a half hour after Johnson's assault began, Hayes and Avery's received orders from General Early to advance. 2,500 rebel infantrymen marched toward Ames's two battered brigades at the base of Cemetery Hill. A member of Stevens' battery spotted the advancing Tigers and Tar Heels and shouted, Look! Look at those men! Lieutenant Edward Whittier, who commanded the battery in place of the wounded Captain Stevens, ordered his gunners to fire by battery at the oncoming Confederates. They first fired explosive shells, which tore great holes in the rebel battle lines. Wainwright's guns on Cemetery Hill joined the barrage. Some were so close to Hayes' troops that they began with canister. Because of their starting position, the Confederates had to execute a right oblique. The right wing of the Louisiana Tigers served as the axle as the rest of the brigade and Avery's command wheeled right toward Harris's and Gills's brigades. Colonel Archibald Godwin, commander of the 57th North Carolina, said after the battle that, quote, Colonel Avery now ordered a change of front and succeeded in wheeling the brigade to the right, a movement which none but the steadiest veterans could have executed under such circumstances. In swinging around, three stone walls had to be surmounted. The ground was rocky and uneven, and these obstacles prevented that rapidity of movement and unity of action which might have ensured success." Unquote. 
Private Van R. Willard of the 3rd Wisconsin Infantry was marching back from Cemetery Ridge en route to Culp's Hill when he witnessed the, quote, magnificently grand, unquote, Confederate charge in Union defense. He later wrote, quote, Smoke had settled down so thickly that the flashes of artillery could only be seen glaring red as blood through it. The thick clouds settled down over the hills, fields, and woods like a pall, illuminated at times with the crimson fire of the artillery as it flashed and burned against the sky. Unquote. Private Reuben Roosh, a soldier in the 153rd Pennsylvania, who was wounded and captured on July 1st, watched from the upper floor of the German Reformed Church and recorded his thoughts. Quote, Johnny started stooped over, scattered like a drove of sheep till they got to this ridge. Then every man took his place, and giving the rebel yell, by this time our grape and canister began to plow gaps through their ranks. They closed up like water, and advanced on a double quick. This was a very interesting sight to me, for I was sitting back and looking on. No one can see much of a fight while he is in it. To see grape and canister cut gaps through the ranks looks rough. I could see heads, arms, and legs flying amid the dust and smoke. It reminded me much of a wagon load of pumpkins drawn up a hill, and the end gate coming out, and the pumpkins rolling and bounded down the hill. The only fault I found with this charge was that it got dark too soon, and I could not see the end of it." Unquote. Harry Hayes' Tigers were the first to strike the Union line at the base of the hill. The 5th and 6th Louisiana Infantry Regiments were the pivot, pivot. Of the right oblique, and essentially marched straight at a salient in Harris's line. The brigade defended a difficult position. Its left wing was refused to connect with Kierzanowski's brigade on their left. Not long before the attack began, there was a gap between Harris's right wing and Gills's left. Ames ordered the 17th Connecticut to close the gap, but this just opened up a new hole, which Harris attempted to fill by stretching out his line. Crying the rebel yell, Tigers charged the Ohioans. Corporal Frederick Nussbaum of the 107th Ohio said that, quote, Our orders were to shoot low, and we mowed the Tigers down as they came up the hill. Quote. One advantage that the Confederates had was the further they got up the hill, the harder it was for the Union artillery to hit them, because the slope of the hill created a defilade that prevented the Federals from depressing their muzzles of their guns low enough to have an effect. The Tigers overwhelmed Harris's left wing. The overextended Yankee defenders struggled to hold their line, and the Louisiana soldiers surged through the gaps toward the Federal batteries. Though some of the Ohioans made a valiant stand, most fell back up the hill, which garnered heavy criticism from Colonel Charles Wainwright, who felt that the mostly German regiments once again fled in the face of the enemy. Quote, so soon as the rebels began to fire, the two lines of Deutschmen in front of the batteries began to run, and nearly the whole of them cleared out. The fault must be in their officers most of whom are adventurers, political refugees, and the like." Unquote. Like I said in an earlier episode, Wainwright's prejudiced and largely unfair sentiment was held by a large number of the American-born officers in the Army of the Potomac. He did offer praise to the German gunners of Viedrich's battery, which was posted on the hill just behind the Ohio regiments. Quote, but on the other hand, the men of Thy Battery, also Germans, fought splendidly, sticking to their guns and finally driving the Rebs out with their handspikes and fence rails. Dr. Mosser tells me that a rebel soldier, whose wounds he dressed in town that night, said that he was on the hill, and that he saw one of the battery men snatch a musket out of the hands of one of their men, and drive the bayonet right through his, the rebel's, captain. This would show that the Germans have got fight in them." Unquote. 
To the east, Avery's brigade made their wide-sweeping right oblique toward the 33rd Massachusetts and 41st New York regiments, who had been placed in a field between Cemetery and Culp's Hill in anticipation of an attack from Johnson's division that never came their way. Instead, they were in the path of the advance of the Tar Heels. They quickly retreated toward the stone wall held by the rest of Gilsa's brigade. The rebels were hot on their heels. They double-quicked toward the center and right wing of the Federal line. Despite taking heavy casualties from artillery and musket fire, they kept coming on until they slammed against the stone wall along the brickyard lane. The predominantly German brigade was overrun by the larger North Carolina brigade, and once again the Dutchmen retreated. Avery's men charged forward toward Captain Bruce Ricketts' battery of the 1st Pennsylvania Light Artillery. Ricketts' battery was part of the artillery reserve and had been ordered by General Henry Hunt to move to Cemetery Hill to augment Wainwright's artillery brigade just before the Confederate attack had started. When the battery unlimbered, Wainwright implored Ricketts to hold at all costs. Quote, Captain, this is the key to our position on Cemetery Hill and must be held. In case you are charged here, you will not limber up under any circumstances, but fight it out as long as you can. Unquote. Ricketts recorded in his journal, quote, My battery charged by General Early's division just at dusk. Punished them terribly with our canister. They took my left gun, spiked it, killed six men, wounded eleven, and took three prisoners. The boys fought them hand-to-hand -hand with pistols, handspikes, and rammers." Unquote. East Cemetery Hill descended into a chaotic, bloody battle as both sides slugged it out in the darkness. General Howard had sent several requests for reinforcements earlier when he saw the Confederate battle lines advancing. Hancock didn't even wait to be asked. The action on his front was dying down, so he preemptively ordered Colonel Samuel R. Carroll to lead his brigade to Cemetery Hill. Carroll was 30 years old and was born into a prominent Maryland Catholic family. Among his relatives included several noteworthy politicians and other officials. They included Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence and the last surviving signer of the document. Father John Carroll was the first Catholic bishop in the United States. His father, William Thomas Carroll, had been a clerk on the Supreme Court and was the owner of the Bible that President Abraham Lincoln used to take the oath of office. Samuel Carroll, popularly known as Red, was a West Point graduate of the class of 1856. 44 out of 49. He was an infantry officer on the frontier and served as West Point's quartermaster before the war. He commanded the 8th Ohio Infantry and then held several brigade commands until the spring of 1863 when he was given permanent command of the Gibraltar Brigade. The unit was given its nickname by General William Fringe, who likened their resoluteness in battle to the famed Rock of Gibraltar. Red Carroll was ordered to march his Gibraltars to support the 11th Corps, but wasn't given any specific directions about where to go. Mostly by luck, they ended up marching to the spot where Ricketts' battery was being attacked by Avery's Tar Heels. Now, depending on the account, Carroll's brigade either arrived on Cemetery Hill just in the nick of time to turn the tide in favor of the Yankees, or they got there when the momentum of the rebel attack had reached its peak and the tide was already ebbing. The truth is somewhere in the middle, but probably a little closer to the latter. Kierzanowski had already led two regiments, 58th and 119th New York, to support Wiedrich's battery. Regardless, Carroll led three of his regiments past the cemetery gatehouse. He shouted, quote, Halt! Front face! Charge bayonets! Forward! Double quick! March! Give them hell! Unquote. The 14th Indiana charged forward and counterattacked the rabble that was Avery's North Carolina Brigade. The Hoosiers drove the Tar Heels back down the hill in retreat until they lost contact in the darkness. Carroll's left flank was hit by musket fire from Hayes' brigade. He ordered the 7th West Virginia to change front to their left, and they charged at the Louisianans. 
Similar to General Rand's Wright's post-battle report, General Harry Hayes made some bold claims about the success of his brigade on July 2nd. This is what he wrote later that summer. Quote, Arriving at the summit by a simultaneous rush from my whole line, I captured several pieces of artillery, four stand of colors, and a number of prisoners. At that time, every piece of artillery which had been firing upon us was silenced. A quiet several minutes now ensued. Their heavy masses of infantry were heard and perfectly discerned through the increasing darkness, advancing in the direction of my position. Approaching within a hundred yards, a line was discovered before us, from the whole length of which a simultaneous fire was delivered. I reserved my fire, from the uncertainty of this being a force of the enemy or of our men, as I had been cautioned to expect friends both in front, to the right, and to the left, Lieutenant General Longstreet, Major General Rhodes, and Major General Johnson respectively, having been assigned to these relative positions. But after the delivery of a second and third volley, the flashing of the musketry disclosed the still advancing line to be one of the enemy. I then gave the order to fire. The enemy was checked for a time, but discovering another line moving up in the rear of this one, and still another force in rear of that, and being beyond the reach of support, I gave the order to retire to the stone wall at the foot of the hill, which was quietly and orderly effected. From this position I subsequently fell back to a fence some 75 yard distant from the wall, and awaited the further movements of the enemy." Unquote. Hayes claims that his Louisiana Tigers had reached the summit, and it was the timely arrival of Kierzanowski's and Carroll's brigades that forced them to retreat. Like the case of Wright's Georgia Brigade, I think Hayes was confused about exactly what his men had accomplished. For one, it was around 10 p.m. at this point, so the sky was completely dark, save for the flashes of muskets and cannon fire. They'd definitely driven back much of the Union infantry, and small groups of soldiers probably did push pretty far up the hill, but it seems unlikely that they'd gained possession of the summit for any significant amount of time. Even if they'd had, they were quickly overwhelmed and had to give up what little ground they'd gained. Whatever was the exact case, lack of support at critical moments once again might have cost the Confederates a chance at victory. What exactly happened? Well, after the battle there would be plenty of finger-pointing. I think that the three commanders with the largest share of the blame were Generals Richard Ewell, Robert Rhodes, and A.P. Hill. Two whole divisions that were supposed to participate in the attack on July 2nd never went into action. One of those was Rhodes' division. Robert Rhodes made a serious mistake when he kept his division in the town for almost the entire day. He did not begin moving his five brigades out of Gettysburg until Hayes and Avery's attack was underway. Clearly, he didn't anticipate the amount of time that it would take for them to maneuver through the narrow streets of the town to get to the open fields of the southwest. When they were finally in position to begin an attack, it was well after dark, and Rhodes deferred to the advice of two of his veteran brigade commanders, Generals Dodson Ramser and George Doles. They convinced Rhodes that to attack now would be suicidal. As a result, Rhodes called off the attack. In turn, General Early decided not to send Gordon's brigade to support Hayes and Avery when it appeared that Rhodes wasn't going in. When Hayes learned this, he ordered the retreat of the two brigades. There was also the case of Pender's division, which had been on the northern part of Seminary Ridge all day. As discussed in earlier episodes, Pender was severely wounded by artillery shrapnel, and command of his division was handed down to Brigadier General James Lane. Just before 7 p.m., Ewell sent a courier to General Pender and asked for him to attack Cemetery Hill in conjunction with the attacks of his 2nd Corps. 
By that time, Lane was already in command, and replied to Yule's courier that he was to, quote, attack if a favorable opportunity presented, unquote. Apparently, Rhodes also consulted with Lane that afternoon about coordinating an attack together with Early's division. Ultimately, nothing ever came of these discussions. It also seemed that Yule was kept in the dark by Rhodes. After the attack of Johnson's and Early's divisions were underway, Yule sent a second dispatch to Lane, urging him to join the attack, but he received no reply. Lane apparently never received orders from Powell Hill to lead the division forward. Around this time, Dick Anderson's division had fallen back west of the Emmitsburg Road, and Rhodes's division sat idly by. I criticized Hill in the last episode, but I think it's worth reiterating how poorly he performed as a corps commander on July 2nd. Whether it was entirely due to unfamiliarity with the job, health issues, or just plain incompetence, we'll never know. Dick Yule wasn't much better. I give Yule some benefit of the doubt as he seemed slightly more active and his task on the second day was more difficult. Rhodes messed up by not moving his division into position to attack earlier, but Yule should have caught this before it was too late. The federal defense of Culp's and Cemetery Hill was mostly positive, but it wasn't without some mistakes and close calls. The 12th Corps abandoning most of Lower Culp's Hill and Spangler Spring gave the Confederates a fighting chance of taking the hill. Had those trenches been occupied, they would have easily repulsed the entire attack of Johnson's division. Green's brigade fought a tough contest and managed to hold off several larger brigades even when its flank was turned. Wadsworth's division didn't face all that much of a fight, but they responded most ably to calls for reinforcements that kept the right wing intact. The fighting on Cemetery Hill once again looked bad for the 11th Corps, particularly the German soldiers. In reality, they actually performed much better on July 2nd than they had on the 1st. They didn't break into a frenzied run, as some accounts claimed. Many stayed on the front line and fought, and most of those that retreated reformed and rejoined the fight. Ames's division was simply spread far too thin to handle the attack of Early's division. It seemed as if the Federals were slightly unprepared to be attacked on Cemetery Hill, but still responded quickly and gave up no ground. Casualties were high. Like I've said before, it's difficult to determine the exact numbers because units involved in the fighting fought the day before and or the day after. I think it's safe to assume that the Confederates lost more dead, wounded, and missing, because not only were they on the offensive, they were attacking the Federals mostly in fortified positions. Casualties weren't quite as severe as it had been on the southern portion of the battlefield, but mostly because of the fighting didn't last as long, and most of it occurred in near or complete darkness. Just the inability to see the enemy lowered the death toll. Still, Ewell's Corps lost close to a thousand soldiers and a good number of officers. Aside from General Jones, who was knocked out of the campaign with a leg wound, Colonel Isaac Avery was mortally wounded in the attack. During the right oblique march, he was hit in the neck by a mini-ball, which caused him to bleed profusely. He fell to the ground, paralyzed on his right side. Soldiers of his brigade found him, and Major Samuel McDowell Tate, commander of the 6th North Carolina and Avery's old business partner, came to his side. Unable to speak or write with his right hand, he shakily scribbled a note with his left hand that read, quote, Major, tell my father I die with my face to the enemy, i.e. Avery, unquote. He died the next day in a field hospital. The soldiers of Hayes and Avery's brigades fell back out of reach of the Federal forces on Cemetery Hill. Meanwhile, Johnson's division hunkered down on the slopes of Culp's Hill, with Stewart's brigade partially occupying the abandoned defensive works. After the fighting had subsided, the 12th Corps began to return to their original positions until they realized that the rebel forces were in the area. General Alpheus Williams decided that stumbling around in the dark would be too risky, so he had the soldiers of his division hold in a field south of the hill to wait for daylight. 
Geary's division did return to the hill and reinforce Green's brigade. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. On the next episode, I'll talk about the aftermath of July 2nd, Lee and Meade's plans for July 3rd, and we'll check in with our old friend Jeb Stewart to see what he's been doing for the past week. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, history. Now here's the help of the next old missus to the gals that want to kiss us. Look away, look away, look away, Dixie Land. But if you want to drive away sorrow, come and hear this song tomorrow. Look away, look away, look away, Dixie Land. I wish I was in Dixie, hooray, hooray. In Dixie Land, I think my stand to live and die in Dixie. Away, away, away down south to Dixie.